0: Thank you Sean and I appreciate Sean a lot last week I I came down with the flu and uh, was not fit to be here to uh, to preach and uh, Friday he stepped up and said I'll take care of it and so I, I'm grateful for that. And for just, you know, a lot of the people that are here uh, that, that, that on a regular basis just take care of things and are willing to step in at last minute to fill in with a nursery or working with, uh, you know, greeting somebody at the door or whatever it is. And so we've got such a generous uh, congregation of people. And so thank you very much for that. And I appreciate your prayers as I'm getting a lot better. I'm feeling better, too. We've spent quite a few times on on Sundays here this year going into the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And we finished that up last week with Sean's message that wrapped up Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin Romans 9 in January. uh, And in December we're going to take a little break and and do some messages that that focus our hearts and and our thoughts on Christmas and what God has done for us there uh, at the birth of His Son and take a, take a closer look at that. But today I want to kind of look back at where we've been here in Romans chapter eight and, and bring us to a point where we kind of figure what, what all he's been talking about to this point. Romans chapter one through eight is a good dividing point in this book, this letter that he has written to the church in Rome. And, and these first eight chapters kind of really uh, present one aspect of his message. And then nine through 16, we will carry on with the rest of it so if you have your bibles you might want to pull up the book of romans or if you've got one of our scriptural journals out there get it ready because we're going to kind of fly back and forth through some of the things in here as we look take a look back before maurice and i moved here to union in 2019 we spent about 20 years in versailles missouri round around lake of the ozarks and for about 15 of those years we lived out in the country uh, surrounded by neighbors that were uh, the horse and buggy Mennonite, and, and what a interesting community that was! Uh, I could tell you all kinds of stories about horses getting lost in our yard and having to chase them down, and, and uh, you know just a variety of things. Horse and buggies late at night, you know, as, as the boys and girls are on their dates and they've got their buggies all decked out with you know running lights and and everything, and, and it's it's just interesting. However. One of the things that I noticed about these families in our area, they put up signs at the entrances to their farms right next to their mailboxes, and these signs would often have something that would, that would communicate their faith in God and also their, uh, what they wanted to kind of communicate to those who were driving by and, and as, a, as more of a passive, suggestive way of their, their message about God. Now, as, as those people would drive by, they might see signs that would say something like, are you ready for Judgment Day? Or they would see a sign that would say, repent before it's too late, or for the wages of sin is death, and fear the Lord and keep His commandments. And some might even be a little more uh, helpful, such as Jesus is the answer. And, and wonderful statements that they would make. Now, I'm sure that, that the messages were supposed to help bring about a conviction of the heart for uh, putting a little bit of the fear of God in the sinners who were driving by, all right, uh, and, and maybe hopefully direct them to, to Christ. I, I think most people believe that there is really only one way into heaven and to be prepared for on Judgment Day, and that is to be good, to do what is right, and to live a, a good life. And most people, I think, if given an opportunity to think about it, and to evaluate their lives, they would realize, I'm not good enough. And I, I, and I don't deserve heaven. The greatest error, however, that I think many of us have is the assumption that there is only one way to heaven, which is by being good and obeying the law and being right with God. And a lot of people believe in some kind of judgment day we know that when we die that obviously there's going to be a place and a time in which we meet our maker and we've got to give an account for ourselves and our lives. Some people look forward to that with their perceived righteousness because they think, I've done a lot of good in this world. Like the Pharisees of old in Jesus' day, they would brag about themselves, as, as Sam had kind of mentioned in his, his uh, communion meditation. Some would speak about how good they were and bring their offerings and, and boast about that, while others would beat their chest and say, be merciful to me. The book of Romans, especially these first eight chapters, provides us with a solution to this common problem that we have. And it does so by teaching us that there's not just one way to get into heaven, which is by being good, but there's another way, which we discover here in this book called grace. It very clearly teaches us that for those of us who are sinners, being good is not going to cut it because we've already blown it. But there is another way, that this this way that is outside of the law, a way of grace. Now, technically, a person could use either of those methods to enter into heaven. You're either going to be really good, 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 and never do anything wrong, or you're going to have to be like me, have blown it, and need somebody to save you. And so we need this. So Romans 6 tells us this wonderful statement there that, that... We're no longer under law, but we're under grace. This is the main aspect that that Paul wants to get to us in this passage here that he's writing to the church at Rome. One of the greatest blessings of knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it gives us the choice between these two ways of being right with God. The good news, the gospel, shows us that that we're not limited to by what we can do to get into heaven which is being obedient to the way of law rather it provides for us another understanding another opportunity that our gracious God in heaven has made possible for us not by anything we have done but by what Jesus has done in his perfect obedience to the law by giving us this gift. This is the way of grace, and this really is the grand theme of Romans chapters 1 through 8. You've blown it, but there's grace. Now there are two choices that, that are involved in this, and these two choices kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're made up this way. There's, there's, there's the, the two kinds of righteousness, there's personal righteousness, and then there is God's righteousness, all right? Now, in in this person, this righteousness means that, righteousness means that we are satisfying the conditions of the commandments of God, and so we have, we have obeyed them to the letter, And, and so that's, that is the condition that we have to have in order to be righteous, that we've got to perfect what the commandment is in our life. And so for me, the first thing we need to look at is how are, these, how are these laws and how is God's law satisfied? Well, it's satisfied by the commandments and by the penalty. So obedience to the commandments or suffering the penalty. Those are the only two ways in which we have this way of law. You either obey or you are punished. That's it. All right? So, how can we in our own personal righteousness achieve that? Well, let's examine that, our personal righteousness during our life. This is how we satisfy or we obey the commandments of God. To be right with God by personal righteousness, I am required then to know what those commandments are and then to live by them. and not break them in any fashion. That's just the way it's supposed to be, all right? We must live perfect lives. So what kind of personal righteousness do we have? Well, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as it's written, no one's righteous. No, not even one. So I've blown it. But but that's Paul, but if you step back even into the Old Testament, in an Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, Isaiah makes this statement. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, they take us away. So personally, I'm not righteous. And as much as you think you might be, you're not either. Because we've all messed up at some point. We've all gone against it. Now, that is why the way of entering heaven through our personal righteousness is never going to work because we can't do it. But then there's God's righteousness, right? That's, that's the other way that we can get to heaven. And it's in his decision to satisfy or pay the penalty of his own law for me. He's decided he's going to pay my penalty so that I can get there. All right? And there's the penalty requirements of law and of his holy nature are therefore satisfied. And he did that through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for me and for you. This is what he's laid out for us. He offers to give us, to give anybody who's a sinner, this divine righteousness that he has earned on his own by his own obedience to his law when he came into this world that we're getting to ready to celebrate at Christmas time, the birth of Jesus, that he became a man and that he lived a perfect, holy, righteous life, satisfying all the requirements of the law in his actions. He then wants to count that. Not as his own, but give that to us. So Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest, and a beautiful bride adorns herself with jewels, he is doing that to me. This is his robe of righteousness. This is his clothing of salvation that he is putting on to us. It's what he wants to do. And so Paul is also going to write to the church in Corinth. And in his second letter to them, chapter 5, verse 21, he says this statement about Jesus and about what God has done to him for us. He says, For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you catch that? Man, that's a powerful statement right there. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's Jesus, so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. Now, there are are two ways that we can relate to God. There's either wages or there are gifts. Now, Romans 6.23 makes the statement, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, relating to God in terms of wages means that on Judgment Day, you will receive what God owes you. All right? All right. So whatever that is, whatever is fair, whatever you have done, he is going to make sure that you get that. You've earned it, you've deserved it by your actions, by your deeds in this life. This is yours. It's your wage. Nobody else gets it. It's yours. You've earned it. It's yours. And if you're good enough, you get to go to heaven. So, in that aspect, Judgment Day is Payday, all right. So we get paid for everything we've done, good and bad. Now, relating to God's in terms of gift means that Judgment Day is like your birthday, all right. It's it's the day that you're being celebrated. And, and, and your father comes to you and he brings you a birthday gift. You've not done anything to earn it. You've not worked for it. You, you've not purchased it. It is just simply a gift that your dad says, this is for you because I want to celebrate you. All right? So we can relate to God in one of these two ways, either demanding our pay by what we have earned and what we deserve, or we can relate to God in the gift aspect where we receive from him what we didn't earn on our own and yet he graciously wants to give us because of his love now involved in these two choices i know the scripture speaks about the gate of heaven but maybe i want us to consider there are two gates into heaven one gate is is the gate of law And the other gate is the gate of grace. Now, Romans will tell us a lot about this. In Romans 6, 14 and 15, it says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, right? What then are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. So we've got these two things, law and grace, that are kind of two ways of of relating and dealing with God and entering into this relationship with Him in heaven. To be under law means that you are now, in essence, standing in the law line, waiting to go through the gate of law, based upon all your good works and your good deeds and everything that you've done. And that line is really filled with basically everybody in, in this world, for all history. They all begin standing at that line of law, through the gate of law to get into heaven. We're waiting for judgment day and we're going to receive what we have earned when we get to that gate. But there's the other gate the other way in which is in essence it's under grace which means that you're no longer in that line but somehow you have discovered another way into heaven and so you're standing in the line of grace waiting to go through that gate and, and, and discovered that hey this grace gate is really neat because according to the rules of grace everybody that's in that line gets to go in Right? And, and you don 't have to be accountable for anything you've done it's It's just a simple entrance so with these two gates, there are two means then of entering the gates one by works and one by faith this is what Paul has been laying out in these first eight chapters there's there's two different systems there's two different gates entrances there's two different ways there's two different means in which that we have this relationship with God and so he tells us here in Romans 328 and later on he'll tell the Ephesians in, in his letter to them in the second chapter chapter that there's works and there's faith and only one of them is really gonna enable you to get in so here we are back where we started. An individual can enter into heaven through the law gate only on the basis of their own personal righteousness or their own personal works of salvation. And if your life is good enough, you can go through the law gate into heaven. But how good does your life have to be? Perfect. I mean, absolutely perfect it means no time in your life could you have done anything wrong plain and simple I have yet to meet anybody that fits that mold at least not in my life and and, and I've been kicking around 56 years you know, and some of you have been around a little bit longer and some not quite as long, but I wonder if you know of anybody who has been perfect. We know a lot of good people, right? I mean, really, really nice people. People that, man, it, you'd like to hang around, maybe adopt into your family and call your best friend or whatever, but they're good people, but they're not perfect. An individual goes through the grace gate, however, by faith. Now, this is different. This is totally different than the, the gate of law in and, and that, and that way because by means of grace, we just simply have to believe that what Jesus has done has been good enough to provide us with His divine righteousness that was earned by His suffering on the cross. And so Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 makes this statement, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and he says, and this is not of your own doing. It, it is, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that none of us can boast. It's, just, it's simply what he has done. So now I want us to take a, a little bit closer look at the way of law. All right. And that's what Paul has laid out for us. The word law is used in two different ways in Scripture. It's used as a code, like a code of conduct. And it's also used as a system, as a means, all right? So it's used as a code and as a system. Now, law as a code of conduct, in essence, it's, it's that God, our Creator, has established some commandments and, and that we are all obligated to obey. everyone. Everyone. there's nobody that is not under a law code of a way of life simply by virtue of being created by God we're there. God as our creator has given everyone a list of commandments to live and obey. Matter of fact, James 4.12 says that there's only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy. But Isaiah makes this statement in 33.22 For the Lord... And judge, he who is able to, no, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Now oftentimes you might hear people talk about pagans. Pagans are people who are outside their knowledge of the Bible. They really have no full understanding of who God is or anything about God or about Jesus or about the saving work that he has done for us. They're just people who have no knowledge really of God. All right? they are still subject to what we might call a heart code. Something that's innately in them that they have to live by in and of themselves. Paul makes the statement this way in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, For when Gentiles, or pagans, who do not have the law by nature by their own nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is where written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them now those are the pagans now the Bible is filled with both Gentiles or pagans and Jewish people as well All right, so the Jews Prior to Jesus' death, they were also subject to this heart code because they were created by God. Plus, they were given the Mosaic code of laws that they also had to obey. Not just the code of, of conduct that was written on their heart, but now God gave them specifically through Moses laws in which they should live and interact with one another and how they should relate to Him. And so you can find that in Exodus 20 and through Deuteronomy. And then sometimes there's a lot of other laws that are thrown in in the Old Testament, especially like in Leviticus. And as we start to look at all these laws, we go, wow, there are a lot of moral laws in which they're supposed to obey. Now, since Jesus, everyone, it doesn't matter whether you're pagan or whether you're a Jew every one of us effective the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 we are subject not only to the heart code but we're also subjected to a new covenant code that Jesus established and that's recorded to us in the New Testament all right as well as the moral laws that are probably out there in the Old Testament because they really are what should be written upon our hearts so that is the code of conduct. The second way that law is spoken about in in the scriptures is as a system, all right? It's not just codes of conduct, but it is a system, a means of attempting to enter heaven by obedience to one's own law code, all right? So you're under the law system if you're trying to use your obedience to your own law code to get into heaven, It means that you're trying to get into heaven by how well you're obeying your morality or God's commands. The question then arises, is it possible to get to heaven with this law system? Theoretically, yes. Realistically, probably not we'll get to that in just a bit, all right? But, but as we, we look under the law code, it, it, it is good and it's necessary. And it's based on the fact that God is our creator and we are his creatures and we are made in his image and in his likeness. And that's never going to change. Now, there's an important observation that Paul makes for us in Romans chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. We've already read it, but it says, For sin will have dominion over you, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." What then? Are we to to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Can I do what I want? No, you can't do what you want by no means. So Paul is speaking to us about our law system in that passage of Scripture, not necessarily about the law codes of conduct. He's not saying you Christians are no longer to be moral people. You do what you want. You you no longer have a, a code by which you're supposed to live by because we are still under a law code and nor is he saying you are no longer under the law of Moses he's not making that statement but really as Christians we're not under the law of Moses that was for the Jews but that's not his point here his point is stating to us here in Romans 6 that you're not under a system of law that's going to get you to heaven because you put your faith in Jesus things have changed it's no longer about your obedience it's now about his obedience and about His grace. Now, earlier I mentioned that theoretically someone might possibly get into heaven by being obedient to this law system. So who is under this law system and, and can it work? Well, we know that everyone who's trying to get into heaven by obeying the law code, trying to be good people, they're under that law system. So it's possible to get to heaven by obeying one's law code by being good enough. Again, theoretically, yes. Realistically, no. We've all blown it. Save one person, which is Jesus. Every one of us in all history has has messed up that law system by our own disobedience. So how does this law system work? How is it possible to get into heaven by, ke- by by obeying our our law code? Here are the rules of this law system. You keep the commandments and you escape the penalty. All right, that's it. But if you break the commandments, you suffer the penalty. So. If you think that you are capable or have already been proving your capability of keeping the commandments and not breaking any of them, you're good to go. You don't need Jesus. Be very careful where you stand on making that statement of how pure and righteous you are. All right? So, one sin, catch this, one sin disqualifies you. That's it. Because once you have sinned, then you're not perfect and you're not going to become perfect. You can't regain perfection. There's no way of, of... Because that's all it takes is one to break it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. James writes to us in his letter, the second chapter, verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. All right, the possibility is there. Jesus proved that because he was obedient. You and I have failed. None of us have achieved it. So that's bad news. And some the bad news for those who are under this law system, Romans 3:23, says that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here's the main point of Romans chapter one, verse 18 through chapter three verse 20, that no one, absolutely no one, Paul, has identified within that passage of Scripture that there's no one who's going to get to heaven by means of this law system since everybody, every one of us have sinned. And once you sin, you can never be perfect again. You've blown it, and, you're, and your case is lost. All right? The law gate is forever shut to sinners. But let's look at the ending of that section of 118 through 320, and let's look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3 in Romans. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are Where? under the law so that every mouth may be stopped in other words you can't talk you can't even speak in your own defense if you're under this law system he says, and the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Everything that Romans 1, 18 through 320 is telling us is aimed at making this point, that by works of law, no person is going to be justified in God's sight. None of us. But here's the good news. All right, let's turn the page. The good news is this, that God has provided another way, a way that is totally opposite of this law system, all right, a way to get into heaven uh, of salvation totally different from anything that we ourselves can do, and one that actually works for people who have blown it, who have become sinners, guilty of breaking the law, all right? This other way of getting to heaven is the system of grace. And so here in Romans 1 through 8, that's what he's been trying to lay out all of this, building us, showing us how terrible and awful we are, but then how wonderful God has been to provide a way for us in spite of ourselves to get to heaven. Right, so this grace is there. Everything in the second main section of Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21, is aimed at explaining this way of grace, since the law system doesn't work for sinners. So let's take a closer look at the way of grace. The concept of grace has three connotations in its relationship to our salvation. There is the source of salvation. All right. The source of salvation, it, it, it is the grace is an attribute of God of who he is in his nature and it, it's an aspect of his love for us this is what causes God to want to save us and to make it possible for anybody to be saved it can also mean the content of salvation this is that grace is the gift, it's the content, it's the gift of salvation. This bestowed upon us by God. It includes our justification, our regeneration, our sanctification, and eventually our glorification so that we can stand in His presence unashamed. It can also mean the system of salvation in that grace is the way to God and the way that God deals with sinners so as to make it possible for all of them to get to heaven. And this is what we're looking at now. So what is this grace system, and how does it really work? And how is it different from the law system? It's actually the very opposite of the law. Total different of what the law is. So let's look at the rules of grace the rules of this grace system say keep the commandments, suffer the penalty. What? Break the commandments, escape the penalty. That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it just sounds so unfair. So read that again. If I keep the commandments, there is a suffering of the penalty. And breaking the commandments, there is an escape of the penalty. What? So I'm supposed to be a sinner? And I get to go to heaven? Under grace, yes. Well, we'll we'll explain here in just a bit. All right. When I look at that, I think it's not fair. I want God to be fair with me. Don't you? Oh, before you say yes, think about that. <laughs> Do you really want him to be fair with you? <laughs> uh, no, because if he's fair with me, I go to hell because I've broken the commandments, right? And that's it. So no, I don't want God to be fair. I I want him to be unfair, especially with me. All right. Maybe I want him to be fair with you, but with me, I want I want him to be unfair. I want him to to not look at what I've done. But but let's look again at 2 Corinthians 5.21 now. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is actually the grace system. Did you catch this? This is it. This is what he's saying this, this whole time. Under this grace system, sin now belongs to Jesus And righteousness belongs to us. Is that fair? No. But that's the point. Grace was never meant to be fair. It cannot be fair. It must not be fair. Matter of fact, by its nature, grace is the opposite of fair. While on the cross, the righteous Father God in heaven, he treated Jesus, the innocent one, and he suffered the penalty that we deserve. All right? So let's go back to the rules of grace again. The first line was, you keep the commandments, but you suffer the penalty. But that only applies to Jesus. He kept the commandments, and yet He suffered our penalty. We break the commandments, and we escape the penalty. That only applies to Christians by faith. All right? This doesn't make sense, but this is what God is doing for us. Under the grace system, God treats us the way Jesus deserves to be treated, and he treats Jesus the way we deserve to be treated. Jesus took what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. And in each case, the opposite is fair. So I think we need to take on a new mentality about how we live. I'm going to call this the grace mentality. The way that you begin to think in everything that you do, it needs to be focused and centered as a thought that begins by the grace of God rather than your own righteousness. How we perceive our relationship to God determines our overall attitude and our state of mind. Those who are under the law or who think they're under the law, and, and there are a lot of Christians wrongly do, even though they have put their faith and their trust in Jesus, they still think that it has to be strict letter of obedience to the law. Now, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound, Paul? Well, no. Well, you shouldn't sin, but that's not going to be held against you. You still should live a righteous life and called to live godly with a code of morality and and law within yourself. That's what we are called by the new covenant to do. But this thought is going to dominate our mental state. Those that are under the grace will be dominated by an entirely different attitude. Those who think in terms of law are filled with dread and terror and whenever they think of death and judgment they're filled with fear because they know they deserve hell. But those who understand that we are living now under grace, we have joy. We have hope. We can have confidence and assurance that when we stand before God, He's not going to bring up all my dirty little deeds. He's not going to remind me of my sins because how he sees me is by the blood of Jesus, robed in his righteousness, not of my own. That gives me something to celebrate. Now, many Christians who are, of course, by definition under grace, a lot of us as Christians, we still think that we... Have to live and act as if we are still under the law. But that's not what he's telling us. You see, we are under grace. But it doesn't mean we should continue to live in sin. We've been saved from our mistakes the transition into this new mentality, this grace mentality, is probably the, the greatest imaginable transition in thinking. It took me a while to get there because I was in my younger days a little pharisaical in my actions. You know, and, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and I would beat myself up when I made a mistake. And I would condemn myself all over again because of my faults. And I would lose joy. And I would take the guilt back upon me. But Hebrews tells us that we have had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience by the blood of Jesus. So I I shouldn't be ashamed. I shouldn't have fear. I, I shouldn't be concerned what it's going to be like when I stand before God one day. I should anticipate it. And ever since that time, my grace mentality has changed so that the first thing that I do when I get to heaven is I want to sit on my Father's lap for about a thousand years and then I'll take turns. All right. I can't wait to see Him I know I don't have to worry about my sins and the punishment that they deserve because that would be fair but grace is unfair and Jesus already paid that penalty that I created. So it it means thinking of eternal life not in terms of something that we earn but in terms of something that God gives us as a gift. It means ceasing to trust our own works and makes us good enough for heaven and beginning to trust the one on the cross as a sole means of entering heaven it means ceasing to be dominated by hopelessness and fear and drudgery and beginning to know how I can live by hope and joy and assurance and confidence and peace it's like changing from playing a game that you know you're gonna lose to a game that you know there is absolutely no way on earth that you are gonna lose that you are gonna dominate this because you're not playing somebody else has played for you if we need peace and assurance I think we need to think in terms of grace that's what he's been telling us in these eight chapters you can either have it the law way or you can have it the grace way I'll take it the unfair way right so what are you gonna say at the heavenly gate when God asks you why he should let you come in I hope your answers will be something like, as Sam said earlier in, out of Luke chapter 18, where the, the man was praying before God and he's beating his chest and he says, You know, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. A, a songwriter put it this way Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Another says, Nothing in my hand I bring simply. To the cross I cling. I think when I get to heaven and God asks me, (laughs) I think I'm going to point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. (laughs) I pray you can do the same. I pray that you accept the gift that he is offering, that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and that you... You don't longer live for self. Matter of fact, let yourself just die and learn to live anew. Bury the old man, the old woman, the young man, the young woman, whatever it is. Be united with him and his death on the cross and be raised into a glorious life. Let's pray. Father, we are not innocent at all. Matter of fact, we're guilty. (laughs) But I am so thankful that you do not see my guilt any longer because of Jesus. And Father, while I know it is not fair that he took the penalty for me, I also know that it was your love who put him on the cross for me. Father, no longer do I want to live in obedience to try and earn my way to heaven. But I want to live in obedience because I love you. And I'm grateful for what you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.